and welcome to our election 2020 uh, project program. This evening, uh, the topic is America's place in the world. And we are pleased to uh, present a distinguished uh, panel uh, to talk about uh, that topic. Uh, the election 2020 program is part of the Tennessee World Affairs Council uh, work with Belmont University, uh, which is serving as host to the October 22nd presidential debate. And please join us uh, on that evening for a debate uh, watch party. And then the following week on the 29th, we'll return with the second part of this America's Place in the World series with a program with Ambassador Thomas Pickering and Ambassador John Kornblum. But this evening we have uh, a, uh, a very distinguished uh, panel to talk about uh, those topics. Uh, joining me uh, this evening uh, to uh, uh, conduct our roundtable is Professor uh, Tom Schwartz. Uh, distinguished professor, professor of history from uh, Vanderbilt uh, University. Uh, Dr. Schwartz is a, a professor of history of uh, U.S. foreign relations of the United States uh, with related interest in American politics, the history of international relations and modern European history. Uh, you can find more of his biographical information on our website and the Eventbrite uh, page, but let me add that uh, he uh, recently published a book uh, Henry Kissinger, An American Power, a Political Biography. Uh, the the uh, book has received considerable attention in, uh, in prominent uh, book reviews. And you can uh, see the interview that uh, Professor Schwartz and I did about a month ago about the book on our youtube.com slash TNWAC uh, website. So uh, with me uh, this evening, Professor Schwartz, thank you for sharing our uh, our session tonight. Good to see you, Tom. Well, it's good to see you, Pat. And I'm glad to, to welcome and, and very honored to be here and be able to chair this panel. Well, I'm really looking forward to uh, to this. Up till now, we've had in our election 2020 series, um, a number of panels with distinguished uh, guests talking about uh, uh, great power conflict, this or that country, uh, global issues like climate change, trade, globalization. But tonight we're going to focus on uh, where America fits in in the world and uh, what we have to look forward to as we uh, uh, could possibly be transforming uh, US foreign policy in the years to come. Uh, with us this evening, we are very pleased to welcome uh, General John Allen and Dr. Jessica Matthews. Uh, General John Allen assumed the presidency of the Brookings Institution in November, 2017, having most recently served as chair of security and strategy and a distinguished fellow in the foreign policy program at Brookings. Uh, General Allen is a retired U.S. Marine four-star, former commando of the commander of the NATO International Security Assistance Force, ISAF, and U.S. forces in Afghanistan. He is the co-author of the book, Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence, alongside co-author Daryl West. General Allen served in two senior diplomatic roles following his retirement from the Marine Corps. First for 15 months as senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense on Middle East security, during which he led the security dialogue for the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. President uh, Barack Obama then appointed General Allen as special presidential envoy to the Global Coalition to Counter ISIL, or ISIS, a position he held for 15 months. Uh, General Allen's diplomatic efforts grew the co coalition to 65 members effectively halting the expansion of ISIL. Up first with uh, Dr. Schwartz will be uh, Dr. Jessica Tuckman-Matthews. Uh, she is a distinguished fellow at the Carnegie Endowment 
for International Peace. She served as Carnegie's president for 18 years. Uh, before her appointment, Dr. Uh, Tuckman's career included posts in uh, Dr. Matthews, excuse me, in both the executive and legislative branches of government in management and research in the nonprofit arena and in journalism and science policy. She was director of the Council on Foreign Relations Washington program and a senior fellow. While there, she published her seminal 1997 foreign affairs article, Power Shift, chosen by the editors as one of the most influential in the journal's 75 years. So those are our uh, guests tonight. We're, we're thankful that they're joining us to talk about this important topic. And uh, now I'll turn it over to uh, Professor Tom Schwartz. Thanks, Pat. Um, and thanks very much to the Tennessee World Affairs Council and its partner for organizing this election 2020 project, and in particular, these two uh, <clears throat> panels on America's place in the world. Um, Dr. Matthews, I'd like to start with you tonight and, and ask you if um, you'd like to present some uh, ideas and, and concepts to frame this discussion of America's place in the world and, and set our discussion off. Well, Tom, thank you, and uh, it's a great pleasure to be to be with you. It sounds uh, it's a wonderful program and uh, a great organization. Um, I think the the moment that we're at, obviously, an enormously important one um, for all the reasons that any um, sentient American knows, but is also although foreign policy is almost invisible in this campaign is an incredibly important moment in foreign policy as well, because the strategy and, and bipartisan policy that guided the US basically from the end of World War II until a few years ago has run out of steam. And um, you know that policy was uh, that we would uh, lead the what we then called the free world uh, geopolitically and through economic largesse and through a vibrant network of allies and alliances and international organizations that we had done um, a great deal to found and to support. Um, and that in addition to our own national interests, we would uh, try worldwide to promote democracy, human rights, free trade, capitalism. It was a very ambitious um, uh, program strategy, and rightly so, because at the end of World War II, when it was formulated, we were vastly the dominant power. Um, and then several things happened. One, we lost the motivating factor of the Soviet enemy when the Cold War ended. And that made a huge difference in how Americans felt. And then in the, in the ensuing years, we had this rocketing explosion of Chinese economic success, um, that, which left us now um, confronted with something we have never confronted before, which is a geopolitical great power that is also an economic powerhouse. 
the Soviet Union was never that. So we have a, a brand new um, uh, rival um, in, in Asia that we didn't have before. Globalization dramatically changed the distribution of economic inequality in our country and, and had a huge effect on our manufacturing jobs and therefore on the stability of the middle class. And we also had um, the growth of populism, not just here, but worldwide. So you put all those factors together and they, they gave us a tr completely transformed world. And, uh, you know, in, in my view, Trump's America Firstism. Um, he, he didn't so much invent it as he perceived it and um, grabbed it and exploited it. But it was the, the grievances, the sense of change, the sense that we, that things were different now was there. It was a pre-existing condition, so to speak, um, uh, before he, uh, before he began his campaign, but his particular genius is to be able to, to um, sense what major um, parts of the American polity are feeling. So to, to wrap up what I'm trying to say, I think that we have that set of ideas and strategies and assumptions that have guided our foreign policy from both parties for 70 years has, has in, in this last four years, clearly run out of steam. One way you can tell, and this is a shocking but true fact, is that the United States Senate has been unable to ratify a single multilateral treaty in 25 years and a quarter of a century. Um, and so the next president not if it's Trump, because he won't do that. But if it's Biden, the next president is going to have to rethink, which is the hardest thing there is to do, um, to come up, I think, with a new strategy that fits our current resources, our, um, our political will, and our influence, all of which are dramatically changed from what we're used to, what we've grown up with, what we've practiced for all these decades. So it's an enormously important moment, even though we're not talking about foreign policy in the campaign at all. Well, that's a, a wonderful way to, to get us started. You've laid out an agenda. I have some questions, but uh, let me go to General Allen and ask, um, first off, if, if, you, if there's anything um, in what Dr. Matthews said that you'd like to specifically comment, but then if not, I do wanna ask you uh, the, the first question on our list, which is, of course, to address um, the U.S. relationship with China and um, ask you if you uh, want to both address some of um, uh, Dr. Matthews' comments or, in particular, where you see the relationship uh, between the United States and China going in the next period of time and what are the challenges and how you see uh, that evolving. Well, first, it's, uh, it's an honor to be with you this evening. Uh, uh, to be with Jessica Matthews on any forum is both daunting, but also a great honor. 
and uh, Professor Schwartz, I don't know you, but I know your reputation, and it's, it's wonderful to be with you as well. And Patrick, thank you for the invitation. Uh, I have to warn everyone in advance, uh, my um, Wi-Fi is unstable for the moment, so I'm hoping to be able to stay with you. And Jessica, I hope I don't leave you alone tonight uh, on the uh, on the floor. Well, it could happen on my end, too. <laughs> uh, I, I, I would uh, violently agree with everything that Dr. Matthews said. Uh, let me just add a little bit of uh, texture as we see it from the platform I'm, I'm in. <clears throat> as we think about American leadership in the 21st century, we have to think about it in, I think, several different contexts. Um, one, of course, is the, the relationship of the United States with the global powers that we have to come to grips with in these days. Uh, and the first and foremost of those is the one that you, Tom, rightly pointed out was China. Uh, we call that the most consequential relationship that we'll face in the first century, and I think under any circumstances, and however it unfolds, it will be. Uh, but we also have a rising India, and it's unknown to us, really, where that path will take us. Uh, it's a great democracy, a large democracy. It's relatively technologically advanced, but like China, it has a, uh, a substantial segment of its population that lives well below the poverty level. Uh, and has many developing nation challenges, just as China has. But but India is a democracy, and India does uh, embrace many of the of the great uh, uh, virtues and values that we do. And so the question will become: How will India emerge <clears throat> in the 21st century as a democracy? Then we have a revanchist Russia, uh, a Russia led uh, in some respects by a kleptocracy and uh, Vladimir Putin's intent to make Russia consequential again in the world. And that has uh, come uh, in the form of a modernized, remodernized Russian military with uh, really lethal capabilities, but also an intent to follow uh, a military doctrine uh, in the context of hybrid warfare, if you will, that has interfered in many respects with uh, the concepts of governance in Western Europe, certainly in the United States uh, in 2016 and 2018. Uh, we, should, we should expect to see that continue. Uh, and while I've always been a bit skeptical of uh, the Russians and the Chinese being able to form a solid union, there are some, I think, inherent difficulties to that uh, between those two peoples. Uh, it's not inconceivable that we will look back on this time 50 years from now and believe that Russia was the Chinese stalking horse uh, for achieving its global strategic objectives. And then, of course, we have the transatlantic relationship which we call the essential relationship of the 21st century, where we in North America, the United States and Canada, uh, and uh, the European, our European friends, whether it's the EU or more broadly our European friends, share a set of values uh, that I think uh, in many respects, as Dr. Matthew says, has defined much of the world order in the post-Cold War period that has been unraveling for a whole variety of reasons that she very rightly stated. Um, but then there's a new dimension to this uh, 21st century world, and that is the, the emergence of technology. Technology will, in many respects, be the platform upon which global geopolitics will unfold. Uh, we, we call it the digital authoritarianism in some respects, uh, digital governance in some respects, but we're going to have to come to grips with that because there are entities in the world today uh, the mega corporations, if you will, there are entities in the world today that have actually more reach into the global population and moment to moment influence than do some of the sovereign states in the Westphalian tradition. So American leadership in the 20th century.
country has to face all of those things simultaneously. Uh, that said, we also have conundrum going on in the Middle East, and we can talk about that if you like, and the, the challenges that we have faced there through two wars, the, the confrontation with Iran, the issues associated with uh, the Saudi-led coalition, uh, the Yemen issues, and of course, Israel and its place in the region. And then finally, we have megatrends that the United States will would have traditionally led uh, in the global community in uh, at least seeking some form of management or mitigation. These are the, the rapid urbanization uh, that we see underway where probably half the world's or more population will be in urban areas by the middle of the century. Uh, we see again the, the rapid rise of technology in so many forms, biotechnology, uh, data-driven, artificially intelligent uh, digitalization. We see changes in demography, uh, rapid change in demography, uh, much of it in the developing world, which makes governance even more difficult, more challenging. While the demography of the developed world ages and becomes potentially less competitive in the context of workforce. And then finally, I think extraordinarily importantly, and I get this question often from military audiences, they'll say, you know, Alan, uh, you got a little military experience. What's the greatest threat the United States faces? And they expect me to say China or, they, or Russia or jihadist terrorists. To me, the greatest threat that the United States faces is the greatest threat that everyone faces, and that is climate change. Uh, and there are dimensions of that that cut across every aspect of the human experience. Uh, in a military sense, climate change has some very real, very severe security challenges in the near future. But just look around the United States in this last calendar year. We don't have a fire season anymore. We have a fire year. The, the period of time of hurricanes is fraught now with both their numbers and their power and their frequency. And the center part of our country is frequently savaged by severe weather and flooding. All of this, in the end, has some relationship back to climate. So this is an extraordinarily complex moment for us, not just in the context of superpower relationships or great power relationships, but in the emergence of technologies that can either accelerate or exacerbate or magnify or improve our world existence. And then there are just mega trends that are moving along that uh, we're going to have to deal with. And where, as the doctor said, where America led on so many of these things and helped us through transformational relationships and an emphasis on multilateralism to find our way either in the management or the mitigation of these problems. The reality is that in the world we live in now in this Trump administration, we have ceased to lead as a global power. And these challenges now go unmet in the multilateral sense where we could conceivably address them in the past. Um, so, if anything, I hope I uh, it reinforced all that Dr. Matthew said, but what I would also then add to the, on the Chinese issue. Um, the, in the world I live in, the world that I have sought to, and if you look behind me, there's a lot of, uh, of uh, my family's experience in Asia. Um, I view that the, the Chinese relationship can, can occur in several different ways. Uh, there is an opportunity, I think, for us to find cooperative relationships with China. Uh, and when you think of some of the daunting problems that we face today in terms of global pandemics, regardless of how the administration seeks to articulate the latest one we're, we're dealing with, whether it's on uh, medical uh, research, biotechnologies that can be enormously valuable to humankind, 
whether it's uh, on issues associated with climate, there are ways that we can find cooperative relationships with the Chinese that without that relationship, some of the most daunting problems that we'll face in humankind will go unresolved in the 21st century. It's just simple as that. Uh, but we're going to have to compete with the Chinese, and we are competing with the Chinese. Uh, and some of that competition can become uh, quite severe. You know, the whole issue associated in this administration with what the president called trade wars are easy. Well, this trade war didn't turn out to be too easy. And we have run some of the greatest trade imbalances during the so-called trade war we were going to win. And many of our farmers have been savaged by the outcome of this, uh, this trade war. We haven't accomplished our objectives. Uh, but we will have to compete with the Chinese in many respects. And out of competition, we should also seek opportunity. But there is no state on the planet that has the capacity to outmatch the Chinese in a whole variety of areas. And here in competition is where there's, a, I think, a great opportunity for American leadership in the post-Trump era. And I think President Biden, if he, if he becomes president, will have to embrace this reality. Here is where the, uh, this global community, and I think in this case, a global community based on a consortium of our democracies, we have the opportunity to compete with China. It's not possible to contain China. No one state can. And even if it were a flawed and failed strategy on our part, the United States has so alienated so many of its partners, we would find it very difficult for them to join us in a containment strategy of China. But I think the democracy global pooling of our capabilities that could compete with China. So we talk about cooperation, we talk about competition. This administration has found it necessary to confront China on so many things. And the Chinese deserve to be confronted on a number of levels. But I, from my own experience, the distance from confrontation to conflict is very short, and that slope is very slippery. And we could find ourselves in a position of being in conflict with the Chinese very quickly. So we have to manage this. And much good can come from a U.S. or a community of democracies relationship with China. But if we anticipate creating a containment strategy for China, strategy for China I think that's a failing uh, effort. So we have to manage it. We have to figure out where their technological and technology relationships will go. And I think that's going to be one of the great challenges that we face with the Chinese. I'm sorry to go on so long. That's, that's fine. Let me, let me, though, take this and ask Dr. Matthews, um, where do you see the balance in dealing with a China that um, has very different ideas on human rights, that uh, its, its behavior toward the Uyghurs, its uh, behavior toward Hong Kong, its uh, challenge toward, toward Taiwan, um, and this point that uh, General Allen raises of the need for cooperation on, on issues that caught across borders like the pandemic, like climate change as well. Um, what, in, in a way, to, to borrow an analogy, during the Cold War, there was often this argument about whether we should deal with the Soviet Union simply on nuclear arms issues or be also concerned about human rights. Where do you see it developing with China? I think right now, our relationship is worse than it has been Mm -hmm. in the 41 years that we have had relation, diplomatic relations with China. In part because we have um, worn ideological blinders too much 
um, in our assessment of we forget um, things that they do, uh, like rescuing the world after the 2009 financial crisis, where a huge Japanese stimulus really brought the economy back, to take just one example. But um, uh, we have been both um, cooperative, we've had both a cooperative relationship with China and we've had a conflictual one. And it's a matter of choice on the part of the two leaders, the wisdom of the US and the Chinese leader. And I couldn't agree more with General Allen's closing comment about the short distance that there is between um, uh, conflict and, and open uh, warfare. Um, right now, I think the greatest risk is in relations with Taiwan. Um, and this is not just the Trump administration, but so-called people who style themselves as friends of Taiwan in the Congress, who are busy undermining um, a relationship and a treaty that has held the relationship in good stead now for several decades. Um, it's enormously dangerous. This is, a, this is not an issue that China can, will um, compromise on or will stand aside as we, if we were to drastically change it. So I, I raise a, a red flag there. I, I think, you know, what we have had in the last um, three years is a combination of, of sort of very erratic, fawning praise, blistering criticism, uh, belligerence, um, the trade war that is largely, uh, that has increased our bilateral trade deficit and hurt uh, farmers um, and been paid for it, not by China, but by Americans, of course. Um, it's, it has, and we are seeing, particularly with respect to Taiwan, this increasing um, danger of, of further rifts. Oh, but don't um, you think that General Xi ha or, or President Xi has some responsibility Xi, on this as well? No, there is no question. Um, the Chinese behavior in the South China Sea has been extremely aggressive. Um, it has also ignored the um, finding of the law of the sea uh, um, institution on what they are doing there. Um, they have been um, uh, pushing with very sharp elbows uh, all around the South China Sea and to a degree also the East China Sea as well. Um, the, what the US has to do, you can't have a China policy without a policy that encompasses the rest of Asia, all of the Asian countries, but particularly Korea, Japan, Australia, India. Um, and, and what we have to do is engage with them without making them choose between us and China. They're, all of them have more trade with China than they have with us. They don't want to choose between us, um, but we have let our alliances go untended for the last several years, and we have done worse than that with all our yes. allies who are democracies. So um, it's a, 
I, I, this is the most important bilateral relationship in the world. It, mm -hmm. it badly needs tending. And I'll just say one, one last word, if I could. One of the um, policy changes the Trump administration has adopted has been this effort to find reciprocity. If China does something to American journalists in China, then we do something to Chinese journalists in the US. And the same with students and, and other things. Um, former ambassador to Beijing, Stapleton Roy, who's probably, I think, our America's greatest uh, Chinese expert, has said that trying to force the follow such a policy of reciprocity, as much as it seems kind of fair, um, instead of making China more like us, makes us more like them. Um, so we are going to have to uh, really um, kind of start over <laughs> in our Chinese policy. And, but and I, I fully agree, President Xi has, um, uh, followed um, in, in, in particularly in geopolitical terms, um, uh, a very aggressive policy and at home, um, a repressive one. And so it's not an easy time to do this, but we have no choice. Um, well, let me ask uh, General Allen, in, in the Washington Post the other day, um, former Secretary, uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense, Paul Wolfowitz had an, uh, an op-ed arguing that the United States should make a very clear commitment to Taiwan's defense um, and that it should state very clearly that any attack on Taiwan would be considered uh, uh, a, a what, that the United States defends Taiwan. And he made a comparison, of course, to the uh, North Korean attack on South Korea in 1950 and the idea that the ambiguity in the US relationship invites um, aggression. I'm curious as to what you think about that argument that we should have a very clear policy of defense on Taiwan. Yeah, I think we've been very clear all along. Uh, in, some, in some respects, the ambiguity of our interests. Uh, let's make sure we're clear on the history here about the North Korea uh, incursion into South Korea. One of the reasons the North Koreans did that was because the United States had explicitly placed South Korea outside the sphere of American influence. Mm -hmm. so it encouraged uh, Kim Il-sung uh, and his Soviet uh, backers, and to some extent, ultimately... Chinese were dragged in. It, it encouraged them for him to attempt to uh, consolidate control of the of the Korean Peninsula because the United States, in his mind, by virtue of some very senior American pronouncements, had placed the Korean Peninsula outside the American sphere of interest and our vital interests, which means we wouldn't go to war over it. That was a massive miscalculation on their part, but also on our part. Now, the Taiwan Relations Act, which the doctor talked about, that's pretty clear that we have relationship and we will keep maintain a relationship with Taiwan. Uh, but we have uh, committed ourselves to a one China policy with the Chinese. And, and I want to review uh, the policy because the words are carefully constructed. And it is that we do not support Taiwan independence. Note that we, say we oppose it. We say we don't support it. But we do oppose uh, any efforts by either side to forcibly change the status quo. Now, with that being said, we provide arms to the Taiwans. We have an annual major exercise with the Taiwans. I won't go into detail, 
I will tell you, we've got very specific planning about supporting Taiwan. So I, I don't know what more we can do on this. You know, there's certain, there are certainties in life, uh, death and taxes. I think another certainty in life is if the day the Taiwans declare independence, the Chinese will go to war. And so we've got it all. Uh, we've got a Taiwan democracy that is vibrant, a real democracy. And President Tsai, the, the woman who leads Taiwan, has been, I think, very effective in dealing with the COVID crisis. We have a Taiwan military that is pretty good. Uh, we have been able to provide some advanced technologies uh, to the Taiwan military. And I don't think there's any question, uh, given our both pronouncements, our support, and our posture in the region, that uh, a declaration of independence by the Taiwans, and we, as I said, we don't support it, uh, it would be high-risk, uh, unprovoked invasion by Taiwan, of Taiwan, by the Chinese. Let me just make one other point. Um, two days ago, Xi Jinping was visiting in Guangdong province, which is across the water, uh, Taiwan, and he was meeting with and talking to, um, in the story, they were described as elite troops, and I'll come to that in just a moment, and to, to Professor or Dr. Uh, Matthew's point, this idea of trading blow for blow, we had just cleared uh, several different advanced weapon systems to be delivered to the Taiwans. Um, which, of course, enrages the Chinese. And I'm not going to say one way or the other whether I think it's good or bad. It just does. It enrages the Chinese. And Xi Jinping, who is now, in essence, the perpetual president of uh, China, whose thought on socialism in, with Chinese characteristics is now doctrine. It's being added into the Chinese constitution. He said to those elite troops, we must now turn our minds to preparing for war. Okay. Those elite troops, the Chinese Marines, know a little about that. Uh, and they, of course, will be the lead echelon in any amphibious assault against Taiwan. So this idea of trading blows for blows, this gets us nowhere. So I don't, I don't think we could be more specific uh, on our commitment to, to uh, Taiwan as a people, Taiwan as Uh, an ally, if you will, than we are now. And I don't think we need to be more specific than that. Okay. Um, no. Not, do you want to um, add something here, Dr. Matthews? Or, or I was thinking well, I was just going to add, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. completely, I completely agree with it. It's, mm -hmm. We have these three communiques with the Taiwanese. Mm -hmm. And with, you know, um, there is brilliant nuance and ambiguity built into them that has mm -hmm. kept the peace um, now for decades. It has also enabled Taiwan to become an extraordinary economic success. I mean, the per capita GDP in Taiwan is higher than it is in the UK and France, even in Japan. Um, so they have both become a democracy it transitioned from authoritarian government to a democracy and had this enormous economic success. It's, it's hard to quarrel with the success of this policy. Mm -hmm. um, we are, the Trump administration has been nibbling at it, sending high level officials, 
where they never did before. You know, mm -hmm. these, a lot of this is symbolic, but enormously important. And um, you know, as has been said, there's not a lot of wiggle room here on the bottom line, yeah. right? Chinese are not going to play games on that bottom line, but it is, it is, uh, I, I think, uh, unwise in the extreme to fiddle with success um, uh, in, in a situation like that. Granted, although in effect, what both of you are saying is that as successful as Taiwan is, we cannot allow the, the Taiwanese to actually have self-determination and decide for independence or that that is simply just not on the table. They should just not do it for their own purposes. Uh, but if they- Not yet. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I, I take your point, but I mean, we are saying yeah. in effect something to them about the limits on which they, they have to operate um, both for reasons of self-preservation and, and certainly our own commitment. Um, I'd like to yeah. just switch the subject a bit though and uh, to another area of crisis, namely Iran. Um, uh, the next administration will certainly face this question of whether, if, if it is a Biden administration, about whether to re-enter the nuclear deal um, and whether it can be simply reconstructed and, and revitalized. Um, should, do we, uh, I'll start with you, General Allen, because of your background on the Middle East, uh, do you think we should uh, simply re-enter it? Should it be renegotiated? Um, what, what do you see? Um, in what was the one area where we had real conflict during the last four years in the sense of, of an actual uh, uh, strike against uh, the top leadership there. I'm wondering what you think um, should be um, American policy toward Iran. Well, it's like everything else um, you're gonna ask us tonight is pretty complex. Uh, this one is maybe a little simpler uh, to get out. Um, first, the administration pursued, I thought, the very hard for three years, and my number one mission was their nuclear program. So I can't go into any more detail. I know a lot about it. And the Obama administration that constrained capacity for Iran not to bring in all of Iran's, all the rest of Iran's regional conduct, because it was it was believed we couldn't get it all into an agreement. And so I think properly, to focus on the nuclear agreement, which the British, Germans, and the EU, and the Iranians all agreed to curtail any nuclear research beyond a civil program for 10 years. That was something I don't think most people believe could be possible. And on any agreement like that, where the Russians and the Chinese and the Americans agree, that's pretty big. Okay, so the Trump administration comes in, it talks about how bad the deal is because it doesn't all the rest of Iranian conduct. Uh, and I think also because it was President Obama as well, and President Trump was pretty clear that many of Obama's initiatives just were unacceptable to him because it was Obama. And we walked away from it. We didn't just walk away from it. We savaged our European allies. Uh, we really uh, left the Chinese and the Russians hanging out there because they had agreed with us. And of course, uh, the, the Iranians who were actually complying and, and 
both the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense warned the president they were in compliance with the agreement. The Iranians now were left out in the cold also. And we've seen behavior, bad behavior from them in a direct line approach to uh, create difficulties and ultimately create pain because of it. Okay, so your question is, should we just try to re-enter the agreement? I don't know that we, it's even possible now. Just a basic term of trust. Our allies have been so badly treated by the United States over this, disparaged, threatened with sanctions, that it's not possible in my mind to go back to the original JCPOA. And your other question was, should we try to renegotiate it? Well, the, the, the Trump administration has, has sought uh, in, in some manner to try to create a separate negotiation with the Iranians, and just not having it. And so the Iranians aren't going to trust us. Our Europeans, and certainly the Chinese and the Russians, are not going to uh, expend political capital by joining uh, an American administration against the Iranians. Again, I think this is going to be very difficult. I think it's going to be very, very difficult. Certainly a Trump administration will try. I think a Biden administration will have the credentials to want to create something new that could be constructive. And I think that there will be levels of trust there that could be reinvigorated. But the JCPOA, as we knew it before, I just don't think is it's possible. And okay. once again, trust away from something that was working. And when we wonder why Kim Jong-un is not interested necessarily in coming to an agreement with the United States, it's because if he had an agreement with the United States, when is he going to be a, ultimately certain that we won't just walk away from that one day? So we've really hurt ourselves, both with our allies and our potential opponents and enemies, uh, in the capacity to bring people diplomatically to the table. That was, a, I think, a great diplomatic accomplishment. Uh, and it's, it's not an accomplishment anymore. It's squandered, frankly. So I'll stop. Dr. Matthews, do you think we could go back to the JCPOA, or do you agree with General Allen on this? I, there's very little of it left. I mean, even at the very basic level, the deadlines for various steps, um, uh, uh, you know, are, are the time has passed. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, on the long list of things that this administration has done that I disagree with, I put this one really at the top because it was so self-defeating. You know, as hard as it is, and I agree that I, I think President Trump just can't bear things that Obama did, um, this was probably his greatest diplomatic achievement. Um, it was uh, a far better treaty agreement that I think almost anybody expected we could get when the negotiations started. Um, but it became a meme of the 2016 Republican primaries where, where candidates competed with each other to say, well, I'm going to kill it on my first day in office. And then somebody else would say, well, I'm going to do it in my first hour in office. And, mm -hmm. um, and then Trump kind of you know, up the ante a bit to say it was the first agreement ever made. And in fact, it was, um, um, as John just said, it, it was a tremendous achievement um, built on a base of almost no tr mutual trust between the US and Iran that has just been so frayed and with, with no diplomatic relations, et cetera. Um, 
what it will take to re uh, to try to recreate the core of it. Uh, it's going to be phenomenally dif difficult because the Iranians. One of the things that it did, besides besides having stopped this nuclear development, which has now been restarted, was it strengthened the hardliners in Iran, who said, I told you so, you can't trust the Americans, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, there we are, right? Yep. Right, right back. Uh, and, and trust is, uh, you know, it's this precious commodity. Uh, for the for the sake of, of of maybe being provocative here, let me offer a counter hypothesis, namely that one of the reasons, of course, the tilt toward Iran was, of course, we alienated the Arabs in the area, the Arab, many of the Arab states who are fearful of Iranian, um, the sort of Iranian revolutionary activities that they've undertaken, and in a way, um, one of the results of the uh, ripping up of the Iranian agreement may be the sort of Abraham agreements and the idea of getting uh, the Arab countries now to recognize Israel and to create a type of alliance against Iran between Israel and the Arab states in the United States. Um, in, to a certain extent, is it not possible that in effect the, uh, what, what, what the Trump administration did was not just a personal pike against Obama, but also a different geopolitical read of the region, that aligning Israel and the Arabs was more important to the United States than reaching out to an Iranian regime, which is not, as you both have said, uh, also engages in a lot of activities we find very uh, problematic. General Allen, do you want to take that on? Or? Tom, I had a instability for a second. Can you quickly restate your question? I'm sorry. Okay, just uh, whether, whether one could see the Trump administration's policy, to the extent it had uh, coherence, as being about a different geopolitical read of the region, namely to bring the Israelis and the Arabs together against Iran, required, in effect, ripping up the nuclear agreement and, and in effect, trying to uh, contain Iran, or at least to, to challenge its act, actions in the region, the types of actions that were left out of the nuclear agreement. Yeah, well, if we go back and think necessity for the agreement to begin with, it was in some respects, in some very real respects, uh, about taking care of Israel uh, and also taking care of our allies. Remember, Iranian missiles carrying Iranian nuclear warheads can go in 360 degrees. So this wasn't just a, a very narrowly focused effort. It was to keep nuclear weapons out of the hands of the Iranians. And I, I tell you that, uh, and I know Dr. Matthews knows this from her experience, um, there has been long-standing cooperation between Israel and many of the Arab states on, on the issues of Iran. Uh, we're only just beginning to see it become formalized in many respects. And so I uh, don't buy, and it's a very provocative question, as you say, it's the right question to ask. I don't buy that the Trump had some prescient uh, overarching strategy that saw the brilliance of tearing up the JCPOA, creating an opportunity for uh, Arab normalization with Iran. I just, I don't see the connection there. Uh, because simply tell you, as having been the deputy commander and briefly the commander of Central Command before I went to Afghanistan, we, we were very closely tied in with all the Arab states with respect to the action that we would have to take against a nuclear Iran. We were very closely tied in with the Arab states. 
and you might not be surprised to learn, we also tied in with Israel as well. So the theory that we tore up the JCPOA in order to create, in essence, burning our ships on the beach in order to not have ability to go backwards, um, that's a theory I think that doesn't hold water, frankly. Dr. Matthews, do you want to, uh, or, or, or should we move on? I have to agree with that. I, I don't think there's a trade-off there. The, except to say that both the Gulf states and Israel were more comfortable with Iran in a box, in a cage, so to speak. Um, and what they, what frightened them, both those sets of countries about the deal was that they could see Iran emerging again, um, not necessarily, you know, as a an active enemy, but as a power, as as the hegemonic power in the region. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, no country stays in a cage forever, mm -hmm. and um, uh, when when countries are in in the penalty box, that's how they behave. Yeah. No. So, uh, you know, this agreement was a way out. Mm -hmm. it, it held, it, 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 it presaged change for the region that was uncomfortable and scary, but still uh, unquestionably the right way to go. Okay. Well, let me, ask you, let me ask you at another level, we, we, we touched on it briefly. Um, in the wake of the poisoning of Alexei Navalny and the continued uh, activities of Russia toward the United States, is there a way forward for the United States relationship with Russia? Um, is there something, what should American policy toward Russia seek to accomplish? Maybe I'll ask you first, General, uh, Dr. Matthews, and then go to General Allen. What do you think we should be dealing, how do you think we should be dealing with Russia? Well, there's, there is no quick magic, quote, reset, right? The first step <laughs> yeah. is to ex ex extend the New START Treaty, mm -hmm. um, which has to be done before, uh, I yeah. think it's the third week in February. Um, it's our last major achievement of those whole decades of arms control work done by both political parties in, in the United States. And it is, it is, it is crucial that that agreement be extended can and Russians have been asking for it it's it's one of those areas where it's the right thing to do for both both parties mm -hmm. secondly you know one of the things that has been hardest to understand about Trump policies is it been about why President Trump treats President Putin the way he does mm -hmm. the Russians ad admire and respect strength and they exploit weakness. And vis-a-vis -vis Russia, we have been weak in the last years. And we have opened ourselves. Um, we, have, uh, we allowed them to do what they did in 2016. We were not prepared, but we also did, didn't punish, didn't, and didn't shame them in the way that- Well, had, that had we done anything we about could. Crimea? Um, well, we have, at least with respect to the rest of Ukraine, 
Um, we have a sanctions regime with the Europeans that has held for six years. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's significant. It doesn't, it, it doesn't lead you to a resolution, but it's important. And, uh, and I also should say that, you know, the, the, the Trump administration um, uh, agreed to ship the Ukrainians far more powerful weapons than the Obama administration had been willing to do, which I think was, is, is been the right thing to do. Um, part of, and so those two things said, the rest is a, I think depends heavily on trying to restore a close relationship with our NATO allies, because this area between Berlin and Moscow has always been, um, you know, for 400 years, it's been a, a um, uh, core foreign policy uh, obsession of, of Russian rulers. That's a European issue. It's a, it's European area. And we can't I think develop back a, a stronger, more coherent, a more explicit set of policies vis-a-vis -vis Russia without a much closer relationship, without a close relationship with our European allies. Well, and would you to uh, an extent? Uh, yeah. I was go going ahead. to say, would no, you uh, favor being tougher on the Nord Stream pipeline, for example? With uh, or at least saying more to Germany about uh, the political impact of, of uh, creating an agreement like that with Putin after he's poisoned one of his opponents. Yeah, um, I would. It's, um, uh, I, you know, I don't think there should be that um, linkage there um, on, those, on those two issues. But I, you know, I, I think, um, you know, Russia is uh, a declining power. It's a weak power with a strong military and a revive, revived military in, in recent years. But it, and as has been said by almost everybody, um, President Putin is a genius at playing a weak hand. He plays a weak hand very well. But it's important to remember that it is a weak hand. Right? So the kinds of policies they will pursue are those that go after weaknesses that others present them with. Mm -hmm. And I think that we, we faced Russia as the Soviet Union as a strong power for so long, successfully, and then tried for 10 years to um, see if we could build on the um, on the breakup of the Soviet Union, a, a Europe whole and free, which failed, um, not by, not, not, totally, because, but... not entirely yeah. of, of our, our fault, but it, yep. the effort did not, did not work. Putin chose otherwise. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and I think we have had trouble trying to define how we can be both be tough in the way that I think you have to be in dealing with Russia, um, but also uh, recognizing 
the enormous power imbalance that there is now between us. General Allen? Um, it's going to be oh, it's I'm going sorry. to be a oh. long, slow process. I, I, I think it, you know, as I said, there, there's no magic formula here. It's going to be a, a process of rebuilding slowly. General Allen, I know you probably started your career with Russia being the central target. Um, what do you think we should be, what, what goals should the United States have in its policy toward Russia? Have we lost General Allen? No? I'm not sure. I think he's uh, locked up there uh, for just a minute, Tom. Okay. General Allen? Looks like he's back. Okay. I'm back. I'm back, Tom. Okay. I think the Russians pulled the plug on me. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, they're pretty good. I don't know, but if they've, if they've got us under observation, we're in real trouble, I guess. Yeah. So what would you... Sorry, please. Uh, I'm just actually asking you to comment on just what should the United States policy be toward Russia? With regard to Russia, Tom, is that what you're talking about? Yes, yes. Well, if you're, I, I hope I'm coming through. Yeah. You know, from, from my perspective, two really important things, or several actually, but uh, two really important things is obviously to make our commitment to NATO uh, very strong and ambiguous. You know, the president's intent to pull about 9,000 troops out of Europe uh, mm -hmm. in particular was, I think, more punitive uh, to punish Angela Merkel than it was uh, a great strategic move on his part that benefited one person, Vladimir Putin. Uh, an unambiguous American commitment to the NATO Charter and Article 5 is absolutely important, and it's been ambiguous. Now, secretaries of defense like Jim Mattis and Mark Esper would say, ah, I've been very clear on that matter. But the president isn't clear on that matter, and he continues to talk about the irrelevance of NATO or the fact that it's an antique agreement and it's irrelevant now. That doesn't help our allies, and it, it actually emboldens the Russians and the Chinese. That's the first thing. Second thing I would uh, Vladimir Putin recognizes that NATO defense alliance. It is not against anyone. It is for the defense of the 29 members of NATO. Um, but what Vladimir Putin really does con is concerned about is the strength and the unity and the coherence of the European Union. And if you watch what has been happening in terms of the, the Chinese bilateralization of relations with our European partners, plus the 17 plus one initiative, plus the president of the United States articulating the EU as America's number one foe. We've got to strengthen in a, let's just say, a wide administration. We've got to strengthen our relationship with the EU. We have to make, have to create the conditions under which the EU can ultimately re-emerge as, as a coherent organization. And of course, Brexit was a, was a terrible blow. Uh, to the EU's morale, to the EU's coherence, to the EU's narrative. We have the United States calling the EU uh, its number one foe, and you have Brexit underway. You have the Russians in direct assault through uh, cyber activities from the democratic processes of the individual countries, and the Chinese creating bilateral relationships, which also work to uh, deteriorate, if you will, the, the disintegration of the EU. Look, if, if the EU comes apart, I think that's one of the greatest victories that the Russians will have in Europe and won't have fired a shot to do it. So those two things we have to do. One is to 
make unambiguous our commitment to NATO. And the other is to do what we can to treat the EU as it should be, which is a great partner uh, with similar values, similar cultural backgrounds, similar economies. And if we can do those two things and be true to our allies and, and uh, very clear in our warning to Russia that we will not tolerate the tampering of Russia in the democratic processes of, of our European partners, then I think that's good enough. And we should never give the Russians a buy on Crimea. We should never give them a buy on the Donbass. We should never give them a buy on what they have done for a genocidal dictator in Syria to his people, which they have done. Give them a buy on what they're trying to do in North Africa as well, in, in Libya. And we're going to have to ha figure out a, a global strategy to deal with the Russians. But if we do those things, unambiguous commitment to NATO, and do all we can to strengthen the EU as a partner, I think that's a good start. Well, let me let me just though pause there because I do think I do think we face a challenge that the Europeans often and especially the Germans often have very different views of, of dealing with Russia than the United States and some of the other European countries. Um, the Nord Stream pipeline being an example of that, but just this willingness um, to be uh, much more sympathetic to Putin or to the Russian position on issues than the rest of Europe and uh, and the United States. So I wonder whether, in effect, we still that Russia is is actually a source of, of disagreement as well within the alliance. And it's, it's not just Trump in this case. It's also sure. sort of a, a bipartisan aspect of, of this, that they, they do see the issues very differently than the United States. Um, I, you know, I did a study for a European, a central European think tank a couple of years ago uh, on the uh, NATO adaptation initiatives that would need to be taken. And it was really fascinating for me, depending on where you are in Europe, often dictates your view of Russia. Uh, so if you're in Portugal or Spain, the view, or Italy, the view of Russia is different than if you're in Slovakia. Uh, or in uh, Croatia. Uh, or in Estonia um, or Latvia. Um, the Baltic countries. Reality, uh, yeah. Well, that's right. No, that's, that's exactly aggression. And the Russian aggression. While there are enormous exercises that are far in excess of our agreements with the Russian, insidious activities associated with those countries as well, uh, and they are being Russia at an economic level that creates a deterioration of their view of the relationship with Brussels. Um, so I, you know, I think that there's uh, there's going to be a challenge here, and what the has to do with Brussels is lead a reality check on who our friends are and who they aren't. And I think, Tom, to your point, I think the Germans are actually rethinking this issue of Nord Stream. They are certainly rethinking their relationship with China as well, given all of these that we're facing. Um, and I, you know, I'm not going to be the one that says Nord Stream is good or bad or should be stopped or not, or we're going to mm -hmm. punish the, the Germans. As, or that's, that's a sovereign decision of theirs. But I, I will say faith in Angela Merkel and cyber and implicit economic threats uh, that they need to revisit the Nord Stream uh, pipeline. You know, we'll see where that goes. Um, uh, I, I, I wanted to uh, 
come to something both of you actually alluded to um, and um, ask about this issue of uh, that Richard Haas has raised that foreign policy ultimately begins at home in the United States and that um, the domestic basis of our foreign policy, the domestic support for our foreign policy. Um, what do you think is necessary for um, American or for the next administration uh, to rebuild support for an engaged and active American foreign policy? What steps would you like to see? Uh, let's, let's hypothesize that, it, that, that as the polls say that Joe Biden wins, what would you like to see done to, given, given the fact that the election campaign has all been about domestic issues and the domestic priorities weigh most heavily on most Americans' mind, what could be done to uh, create a more engaged uh, view of the United States in foreign policy that could have support in the United States? Dr. Matthews? I think the first thing is to try to talk to the American people um, about the importance of allies and alliances, that this is a huge part of our strength um, and that and how much of what we do abroad um, is flows back and forth between us and our allies, that it's not a one-way street um, as, as people, excuse me, have been, you know, you know um, uh, ever been hearing over the past few years. So we need, I mean, the present new president needs to talk about how much of our desires of the things we want to achieve and we want to um, uh, for ourselves and for the world um, abroad stem from multilateral cooperation from allies and alliances. Okay. The second thing is much trickier um, because it's going to take a long time. And that is that the, um, that I think that the willingness to support an active and engaged foreign policy uh, from the American people depends to a huge degree on the, on the degree to which they feel that their needs are being met at home. And so that's not something you can repair quickly but it's essential. And it's also essential on the other side of, of the coin, and that is that a huge part of the United States legitimacy abroad stems from the success of our democracy at home. We do not look like a success right now. We look like anything but. And so an important part of our power um, uh, and our legitimacy to pursue the ends we want abroad comes from what others see as the success of our democracy at home. So, you know, though you, you can't separate both the domestic um, willingness to, to put resources into. But let me just add one of also uh, maybe seemingly um, uh, vague, uh, but it's not um, factor, which is we have to invest right now money and attention and time in our diplomatic arm. 
It is in terrible, terrible shape. And, you know, we have been, uh, I would say to some degree, over-investing, certainly relatively, in our military arm for decades now and under-investing in the State Department. And, you know, military leaders have been the first to say this. But the last three years have been disastrous in the State Department. We have lost a whole generation of our very, very best, most skilled, most experienced diplomats. And it's very, and they can't be replaced. I mean, maybe a few of them can be lured back, but it's, um, we're going to have to rebuild. Uh, but, and both the new president has to convince Congress as well that this is, we, that we cannot achieve, not, not just Congress, but also the American people, that we can't achieve our aims, our security, our well-being, the planet's health, without um, a strong, effective diplomatic arm. And um, it, it, it's going to be crucial for the new president to start rebuilding that with the very best people he can recruit. In fact, you, um, your, your answer actually preempted a question that we had got on the chat about this, in fact, the hollowing out of the State Department. General Allen, do you, what would you want um, an American president or a new administration to do in terms of uh, uh, creating greater domestic support for uh, an engaged foreign policy? Well, it's going to be difficult. Uh, we'll just assume it's a Biden administration. Uh, the Trump administration will just continue to take us down a, a road none of us can stand. But first, let me just echo and every fiber of my body uh, being uh, attach myself to Dr. Matthew's comments about the State Department. You know, the great of America has always been in the execution of our foreign policy. And the leading edge of American foreign policy has always been our foreign service and our State Department. Now we have enormous coercive capacity with the United States military to back up our foreign policy. But it's been our, our, pres our uh, ambassadors, our foreign service officers serving the very outer edge of American influence that have, that have always made the difference in what has made us a truly great global power. And it is in Awful and bad effects are important. Second thing is Americans, and we've seen this in uh, polling, Americans actually do support a global role for the United States. But after you ask them that question, when you say, what does that mean? And how much are you willing to invest in it? Where should that investment go? And who should be our, that's difficult. And it's become really difficult in the last, during this administration in the last four years, because we have spent a lot of time with the president of the United States backed up by a, a, a dysfunctional system of uh, diplomatic apparatus, savaging our allies, uh, diminishing international organizations that in so many ways, as Dr. Matthew said at the, at the top of this uh, gathering this evening, really helped to define American inventions of international organizations, helped to define the international organization, the international community. Mm the United Nations, the World Health Organization, the World Food Program, the UN Development Program, all those, they were American inventions. Yet we have systematically pulled ourselves out of many of those. We have diminished, we have 
criticized. We have ceased to support many of the international organizations define the ability for to have to create a narrative where the United States leadership in the world is relevant. And I don't think we'll find any of our former allies in Europe or Asia who would say we don't want it. So it's not just relevant. It is yearned for in the world, which we have the last three years, but return to an era where we were transformational power, where the presence of the United States in any one agreement, all of the participants in that agreement, not in a transaction way, not in a purely mathematical way. We were all greater than the sum of the parts because the United States led in that process and our diplomatic corps was at the leading edge of that. So we've become transactional, we've become bilateral, we have eschewed our responsibilities to international organizations and multilateralism. And that has become, in essence, the mantra of this administration. So a, a President Biden has to completely reorient this narrative. And America being great again can't be America alone, which is where we are now, reasserting ourselves and ultimately re-embracing our global role. And America does two great things in this world when we get busy. One is a, a capacity for global convening, global convergence. I was the president's envoy to the Global Coalition Against the Islamic State. Just the American request brought 65 nations together to deal with that problem. We couldn't do that today. So that kind of global relevance to convene the, the, the great powers for whatever reason it might be, a pandemic, a security problem, an economic meltdown. But the other thing about the United States, besides a global convening capacity and leadership, is global reach. And I'm not talking about the, the global reach of our great air force, which of course exists. I'm talking about the global reach of our values, the global reach of our diplomacy, the global reach of our economy. The, our economy is one of the most powerful forces that's ever been unleashed on the planet. And when that economy is being wielded alongside capitalist economies of the other democracies in the 21st century, a lot can get accomplished, but with American leadership. So President uh, Biden has to define American leadership in the 21st century as a leadership of a coalition of democracies and, and capitalist societies technologically advanced to do good in the world, but also, by the way, to compete with the authoritarian, compete with the illiberal states, and ultimately to deal with some of these uh, mega trends that are coming at us like a freight train. So Americans want to be involved in the world. For the last three and a half years, we've been pounded on the head that our allies are making us suckers, that's the term, and that multilateralism is no good because US, if it's great again, can do it bilaterally in a transactional way. We gotta reverse that whole thing. And that's going to be perhaps much of the energy that will have to be expended by the, the Biden administration is just reversing that to get us back on something that looks like an even. Well, I, I, I take your point. I, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical that this campaign would provide any type of mandate to do that since, since this is completely off the table in terms of a real discussion. But let me, there is a question that was submitted for Dr. Matthews. Um, can you talk about the impact of nationalism and nativism around the world and the effects those issues are having on the world? This is from a former Ambassador Bowers. 
Well, um, the world's a, um, a big place. I, I, to, what I see more than nationalism is populism. I mean, there I see um, more of, a, of an international trend towards this sense of, um, uh, of the, the wisdom being embodied in some um, inchoate, the people. Um, and that, that trend has spread. It, we certainly see some of it here in the US. Um, but also um, really uh, kind of globally. Um, I don't see what has happened recently as um, uh, a resurgence of nationalism so much. I mean, Europe, the most, I mean, the most important sort of geopolitical development really of the last several decades has been the creation and solidification of the EU. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and, and that has been a, a triumph over nationalism. Um, so, uh, but populism is something that we, um, uh, that we do have to worry deeply about because um, it almost always leads uh, to bad outcomes. <laughs> uh, but don't you, wouldn't you argue or wouldn't you see that uh, some of the EU's problems, for example, its difficulties in dealing with Brexit and uh, the resistance of countries like Hungary and Poland to EU edicts, so that nationalism hasn't gone away. It's, it's, it's still quite vibrant in a sense. No, in, in... national feeling has not gone away. And the EU's struggle over all these decades to balance um, love for country and love for um, all the national symbols and national culture with this great um, uh, regional blending. Um, I don't, I don't uh, uh, underestimate the EU's weaknesses, but I think if you try to get Ohio and Vermont to agree on how to make cheese and how to make beer and how to, you know, and the thousands and thousands of things that you has managed to agree on, you'd find we have a, we have, um, we, we would have a hard time doing it. Uh, mm -hmm. The EU, I think we, we underestimate, we are confronted all the time with the things the EU has not yet been or not been able to do. Um, we make a big mistake if we underestimate what it has achieved. Um, in you know, the Iran deal was was um, a, a perfect case. The EU played an essential role in that whole negotiation, um, representing something much bigger than the particular countries that were also represented at the table. Um. I have another so question. You know, it's a mix, okay. but it's a bit. It, it, I have a question for General Allen. Nationalism hasn't gone away. No, <laughs> um, General Allen, have we lost our position? This is a question um, uh, via uh, uh, Twitter. Have we lost our position as leader of the free world? If so, can we get it back? Should we seek to get it back, or has the domestic climate changed to the point where it's not an imperative? And here, 
Um, I would sort of uh, mention also the article in Foreign Affairs recently by a couple of scholars saying the United States uh, should have a position at the table, but not be at the head of the table. Um, and so that there is among some uh, sort of an argument that perhaps you know, we can't go back and we have to devise a new role. How would you react to that uh, argument? Or do you think uh, American leadership um, yeah. is essential? Well, I've spent a lot of time traveling and I've spent a lot of time uh, meeting with leaders around the world. And almost without exception, uh, speak with great fondness and, and uh, in some respects melancholy about uh, the fact that the United States is not leading. Uh, on so many really important issues in the world. Uh, and I, no, nobody wants an American hegemon to be dictating uh, the geostrategic realities of the world, but, but so much of the world yearns for a return of constructive values-based American leadership. So uh, whether we come to the table or not, I happen to think that what, if we came in and sat at the middle of the table, we'd find ourselves pretty quickly at the end of the table, at the head of the table. Not, not because we elbowed our way there, and not because we uh, intimidated or coerced our way to the head of the table, but because again, the logic of American global leadership as compared to Chinese global leadership or Russian global leadership, the logic is so clear. And in an administration that places values first and seeks constructive multilateral relationships and celebrates alliances and is trustworthy, that is what is yearned for on the global stage today. We have to spend very much time overseas for countries ultimately to say, uh, we would love to see a return of American leadership. Now, there, there are changes, there are realities that we have to embrace on what that leadership looks like. And I think that's gonna be a challenge for the, for the uh, uh, Biden administration should it be elected, but I think Transformationalism, re-embracing multilateralism, re-national organizations, being trustworthy, mm -hmm. telling the truth. I think if we just do that, okay, we'll better pretty quickly. Um, we're, we're running out of time here, but I, I have a question for Doreen from Doreen yes. Miller on Long Island, who asked, "If President Trump is reelected, where do you see our place in the world?" I think, do you, do you believe world leaders would turn further away? So yes, but maybe ask both of you to speculate. Well, what if what if the polls are wrong again, and we have four more years of the Trump administration? Where do you see that taking us, uh, Dr. Matthews? Um, I'll get to it. Let me just say one word about yeah. what we've just been talking about, if I may. Um, this is really this, uh, this is the core of what I was trying to say an hour and a half ago when we when we began about reinventing what. You know, there are a few options. One is kind of retrenchment, right? We, we choose to do less. We choose to define our, our interests more narrowly. And one is an attempt to um, reinvent the status quo ante. That one's not going to work, I don't think. The difficulty is trying to figure out what the middle role is that captures some of the things General Allen just said, but is more restrained um, uh, than, than we have been in the period since the end of the Cold War. For example, for me, it would mean a much more uh, constrained, um, 
less aggressive policy about trying to promote democracy elsewhere. That for, for me, that is one area where we would want to try to change how we've been after the, so I, I just wanted to, to and, and the other thing that's worth saying, and I think it was implicit in what General Allen just said, is that there is no replacement for us as a global leader on the horizon. Certainly not the Chinese. It's not their ambition and it's not their capacity. The EU is too unwieldy. You know, so who is it? There's, there isn't anybody. But we will get in trouble, I think, if we just, and sometimes some of the things that Vice President Biden says and writes makes me nervous that there might be an attempt to do status quo ante. It won't work, I think. And um, on, the, on the question of what happens if President Trump is reelected, um, to me, it's a very dark future. It's uh, because, and it's very hard even to define it because it is, the policy has been so erratic. But I think you can, you can describe it as an inexplicable friendship for dictators and authoritarians, an inexplicable dislike for democratic leaders, and a misplaced reliance on sanctions and on bluster uh, as tools of uh, and, and coercion as tools of, of foreign policy. I, I think we will see more of that same. Okay. Uh, General Allen, we're right, almost at the end. I'll give you the last word of the night. Uh, if a Trump is reelected, uh, yeah. and that may be your own thoughts. I, I'm deeply worried for the future of the country, not just the world order. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think Dr. Matthews really touched well the international dimensions of it. But look, we just had uh, the FBI roll up two plots to kidnap and execute at least one of two American governors. And why did they do that? Because they were listening to the tweets of the President of the United States that called for the liberation of those states from governors who were trying to flatten a curve that was killing thousands and thousands of people in those states. Uh, we also have <clears throat> uh, a splintering of the American society along color. Uh, that we had not seen before, and this could become very violent in a second Trump administration. Uh, we have walked away from the traditional role of the United States as, as being one of the great gatekeepers on the matters of humanity and human rights, uh, as is evidenced, I think, by the uh, uh, Afghan peace treaty, where we walked away from an opportunity for us to secure the rights of women in the aftermath of this horrible sacrifice that all of us have gone through for so many years. Matters that will preclude, I think, to have or see we will have to have in order to be the kind to be. So I see both, as Dr. Matthews, international. But I see in our night we have 17,000 dead Americans. And that's because of the appalling failure of this administration to deal with this disease. Of the side 
collapse of our economy and the blood black and relevant society necessary for us to be able to stride onto the world stage and exert leadership. And I'll stop there. Okay. Uh, well, that's one way. Let's, um, let's, uh, let, me, let me just thank both of you very much for this discussion and turn it back to Pat uh, for a closing comment. Thanks, Professor uh, Schwartz, and, and thanks to our distinguished panel tonight. This, uh, this has been an honor to be a fly on the wall here um, during this uh, splendid conversation of America's place in the world. Um, General, I hope we can get the Russians out of your internet. Uh, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I really think that, that this was uh, a, a great conversation and will provide uh, much uh, for conversation among the Tennessee World Affairs Council members and all of those uh, from around the country who have had the uh, honor of uh, watching the program tonight. Uh, let me uh, start by uh, applauding uh, both uh, Brookings and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, for the uh, spectacular work that uh, uh, your organizations do, uh, Dr. Matthews, under your leadership for so long, and General Allen under your leadership currently. Uh, there's not a day that uh, my inbox is not filled with uh, very special uh, emails uh, with reports and um, conversations and solicitations for uh, video webinars and so forth. Yesterday, uh, Carnegie presented a conversation about New Start, and uh, one of the speakers was the Matthews Chair at Carnegie. And uh, General Allen, uh, thanks to Brookings for the support uh, that the World Affairs Councils of America uh, gets from Brookings. There won't be an in-person national conference this year, but the, uh, the conference attendees have, have been always welcomed by Brookings for a think tank visit, uh, which is much appreciated. And on behalf of the Tennessee World Affairs Council, uh, every April when we bring our championship team for a competition called WorldQuest, the national title in Washington. Uh, we are always welcomed at Brookings for a special presentation by some Brookings uh, analysts or uh, the, the young students that we bring to Washington. Uh, so thanks to Brookings for that. Uh, thanks, uh, Professor Tom Schwartz for a wonderfully moderated uh, session. Uh, this has been terrific and uh, we look forward to two weeks from now, Ambassador Thomas Pickering and Ambassador John Kornblum. Um, and, uh, and that's it. Other than to mention, uh, Professor Schwartz has a wonderful book out, uh, Henry Kissinger and American Power, a political biography. Thank you. Thank you. General Allen, you, you have a book <laughs> as well. And uh, your book was the, uh, the monthly, uh, we have a, a weekly quiz that we do at the World Affairs Council and we offer a, a prize. And your book uh, was, uh, was the prize the, this session. Um, if, if you'd uh, like to say uh, a brief bit about that, we'd, we'd be happy to, uh, to tout that here. Well, any about, about your forum or, or, yeah, any, any platform that will uh, hawk my book is a, is a favorable platform to me. Uh, the thing we didn't talk about tonight, it would have been great, uh, and next time we ought to, is that's the role of artificial intelligence and biotechnology in the century. They may be the principal influences if we're if we're uh, lucky, uh, and if we're not lucky, they could be a real nightmare for us. Uh, and that's in essence what the book does. It talks about policy across the entire spectrum of the application of artificial intelligence, from education to transportation to cities to defense. And uh, that's often the problem. We're about seven years behind in policy lagging technological advance. 
can't afford for that to lag anymore. Yes, sir. Well, thank you uh, for that. And uh, we look forward to uh, getting a copy of the book here. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that. I've already read uh, Professor Schwartz's book on uh, Kissinger, an excellent book. Dr. Matthews, any, any books or things to sell? No. Mm -mm. Great. Well, thank you again. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Uh, so on behalf of the World Affairs Council, thanks to Dr. Matthews, Dr. Schwartz, and to General Allen and Semper Pfizer.